Well, again, I want to welcome you guys. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. And as you guys are aware, today is Family Sunday. And so I want to just take a brief moment, uh, kind of an aside, if you will, and just kind of explain what the point of today is. Uh, Family Sunday isn't just a day for our nursery workers and our children's workers to get a day off. That, that is a beautiful opportunity for them. Today is about bringing all generations together to worship the Lord together. It's a day for our children to see what their future worship experience is going to look like. One day they will grow up and leave children's ministry and worship with the saints. And this is an opportunity for them to see, hear, and respond to the glory of God's name with all generations. And so today's an exciting day, and I want you to know it's going to be a little messy. It'll be a little louder. My children will probably scream, and I assure you they're probably the loudest. But just know that going in, know that it's going to be fun, and it's going to be a different day. Now, with that said, I want you to know I'm going to strive to be on the shorter end, and I know that for me, shorter is like 40 minutes. I've only got three pages of notes today, guys, so we're in business. Now, we're going to be continuing our study in Leviticus, and today we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 23. I do want to make a note uh, as we are moving into this, uh, if you feel led to give, you're able to give online, uh, or you're able to give in person as you exit. But we're in Leviticus 23, and so here we're going to be looking at the last half of this chapter. Uh, I've titled this Celebrations of Grace, and as we've looked over this chapter, you've probably caught some uh, things happening here. Uh, one, from what Pastor Brian did last week, but two, if you've read ahead, you've seen some celebrations and really what we would term in our modern culture, some holidays within the Jewish life. Now, as we study this passage, we see that even in modern times, many of these celebrations and festivals are still a part of the Jewish culture. But as we look at this, it's something I think for us easy to connect with because we all know what holidays are, right? We kind of measure our year based on when the next holiday is coming, right? For many of you who are in school, you've said, if I can make it to Memorial Day, I'm done, right? I've just got a few more days left and I'm finished. Some of us are looking eagerly forward to July 4th, we're going to take time off. Some of us are thinking about Thanksgiving, and one, we're thinking about turkey and dressing, but two, we're dreaming of the Black Friday sales. Others of you are waiting for Christmas because that's your favorite time of year. It's cold, and even though we don't get snow in Charleston, you're dreaming of snow, right? And you're just thinking of all that time with family and friends and presents. My kids are mostly interested in presents, but you're just thinking about these great moments. And as we think about our year, we tend to plan our lives around these holidays. Now, the, the Israelites were no different. They are planning their lives, their schedules around these holidays. One of the key distinctions between us and them, though, is that these holidays have been given to them by God to celebrate and rejoice in. They've been given by God so they may remember who He is and who they are. You see, the goal of these holidays isn't just to give them time off or to have a feast or to do any of these things, though those are some of the things they do. The point of these holidays is to continue to, one, show them who their God is, and two, show them who they are supposed to be. Kind of the byline of the entire book of Leviticus, we've said this week after week, but holy God, holy people. And so as we look at this, we recognize that we have a reason to celebrate. For our kids in the audience, that means we have a reason to party. Do you know what parties are, right? These are times we celebrate and rejoice and have great experiences. That is what we get to do as we gather with the church each Sunday. And so today as we look at this passage, let's keep that frame of reference in mind that these are momentous occasions in the life of the people of Israel and that they have some direct applications to our lives today. 
Now, we are going through a, a large number of verses, so I won't make you stand during that. We're actually going to go a chunk at a time just to make life easier on me. The first few verses we're going to look at is going to be verses 4 through 8. And we're going to be looking at the Passover. Read with me in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 4 through 8. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. So, as we begin here, we're looking at the Passover here in this section of Scripture. And we get into verse 4, and we've got this repetition from verse 2. Verse 2 reads, Speak to the people of Israel and say these things to them. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. You see, God is repeating himself in here, and when we see repetition, that's the scripture, writer of Scripture trying to emphasize something to us. And God is emphasizing the holy nature of these events. He's showing the people of Israel that these are given by God to them, that they are generously offered to them as an opportunity for them to worship the Lord and to, again, remember who they are in the Lord. You see, again, the point of these moments is worship. God is setting his standard for people and saying, this is how you're to live and worship. Now, he begins by referencing the Passover. And uh, if you have been a student of Scripture, you probably are familiar with the Passover story. Anytime I think of the Passover story, I think of uh, Charlton Heston and that old movie that used to play on ABC all the time, right? I remember watching this growing up and just uh, being in awe of that. Even though as a young man I wasn't a believer, just this momentous event of the Passover. Now, what is the Passover? Well, as we study back in Scripture, we see this back in the book of Exodus, uh, specifically chapters 12 through 14 is when this occurs. As we look back in the Passover, this is the moment where the final plague occurs, where this plague of death comes upon the nation of Egypt. And in this, God has said he's going to take the firstborn of any household that does not have the blood of the lamb smeared upon their doorpost. That if the blood of the lamb is smeared upon the door jam, he's going to pass over that house. Now, as we see in the scripture, we see that this angel of death comes through Egypt and indeed, as God has promised, he passes over any house that has the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. He passes over those houses, and those people are safe. Now, the other houses, the ones that did not trust in the word of the Lord, that did not listen to God, we see through Scripture, we see this historical event where the firstborn of these people are killed. Even Pharaoh suffers from his firstborn dying. Now, as we look at this, we have to recognize in context that this is a significant event in the life of Israel, right? This story is a crucial portion for Israel. Beyond just the fact that this is a redemptive story and this is pointing us to Christ, and we'll get to that in a moment, that this is the beginning of the nation of Israel. To put it in our context, we celebrate July 4th because of what? Because that was when historically we view our nation as beginning. July 4, 1776. That's when America began, right? That's why we celebrate that day. In the same vein, this is a very similar event for the people of Israel. 
that this is their July 4th experience. And yes, there's much more that goes into it. But when they look back at their historical record, they say this is when the nation of Israel began. This moment when God came in and rescued his people from Egypt. And so it's a significant moment in the life of Israel, one that they are coming together to rejoice and celebrate in. Now, we don't just have the Passover mentioned here. We have this feast of unleavened bread that's mentioned. And you might be wondering, well, what's this about, right? Well, you see, this feast is going to reflect the preparations and really the hastiness of the Hebrews' departure from Egypt. You see, as we look back in Exodus chapter 12, we see them leave with unleavened bread to fill God's command to get out. He tells them to leave and leave immediately. There's no dilly-dallying, there's no delay. God is saying, you're going to leave and I'm going to provide for everything you need when you get out. But you need to get out now. And so the people leave. And as you look back at Exodus 12, you see multiple references to this. But that is what they had. They left with literally what they could carry on their backs and left Egypt trusting God to provide for them as they were making their way to the promised land. Now, as you look at this, you might ask, well, why are these two connected, right? Well, these are linked, this event in particular is linked to the Passover just the same way we, we would link Christmas Eve to Christmas Day, right? You don't celebrate Christmas Eve without Christmas Day. If there's not a Christmas Day, there's no Christmas Eve, right? Yes, they're individual events, but you have to celebrate them together. Now, as we look at this, the Passover and this feast in particular, they may sound reminiscent to some things that we've seen in the New Testament, right? As you hear the story of the Passover, you see some themes, you hear some themes from Jesus' life and ministry. Specifically, this idea that the blood of the Lamb that allows death to pass over the chosen people. Is that not reminiscent to the language in the New Testament where it talks about Jesus as a spotless lamb who paid the debt of sin and shame for his people? That the chosen people who would respond to God's grace would be his? While we don't celebrate the Passover the way the Jewish people do, we do celebrate it. You see, our Passover experience is called Easter. If you're a student of the biblical record, you'll study scripture and you'll see that Jesus' last week alive was actually in Jerusalem during the Passover feast. During that time, he is in Israel, he's gathered in Jerusalem with his disciples and Passover is occurring during his night before his arrest. That's where we see in the scripture that we see Jesus ascribe the Passover meal as the Lord's Supper for us, where he tells us to do these things in remembrance of me. My body will be broken, my blood will be shed. For you. Later that night, he's arrested. He's arrested in the garden. And from there, the next day, he goes to the cross and is crucified on our behalf. You see, we celebrate the Passover experience, but we celebrate it in the full fulfillment of what it was intended to be. That I would submit to you as we look at the scriptures, we look particularly back in the Old Testament. Many of the things we see that occur in terms of worship practices or celebrations or even historical events like the Exodus are pointing to the coming fulfillment of Jesus. You see, they're pointing to this one who has to come. These events are but a pale shadow of the one who has to come before. And as we recognize this, we look back and we see in this historical record that the Passover, this celebration of rejoicing in their saving is the same thing that we do each and every Sunday. That you and I gather here on every Sunday to celebrate the Passover yet again. 
that we were dead in our sin and shame, and God chose to pass over us and forgive us of our sin and shame. That God chose in His richness and mercy through nothing we could have done. He came to rescue you and I. And so every Sunday as we gather, we're celebrating another Passover, but one that has been fulfilled through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this, we recognize there's a direct correlation in our worship and our practices from this passage. Now, the verses don't end here. This passage continues going. And we'll see some more application here in the next few moments as we look at the next section. And the next section simply is a section on first fruits. Now, you'll understand what that looks like as we get to these verses. Let's look at verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah, of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat the, neither bread nor grain, parched nor fresh on this day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be made of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. This shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offering. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy, holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for your sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So we have this section talking about first fruits and here we're going to see two events that are celebrating the harvest season. Now, as we're thinking through the Bible story, right, we have to understand our history and our context here. Israel was freed by Egypt, but if you know anything about where Egypt is positioned, what's around it? Lots and lots of desert. Lots of desert. And so the people of God have been rescued from Egypt, but now they're in the middle of the desert. And even in the middle of the desert, God is demonstrating his provision and care for them. That's despite the fact that while they're in the desert, they rebel against him. And God says, those that have rebelled against me must die here in the desert. and You will not inherit the promised land. 
And so he says, you've got to wander the desert for 40 years so that all those that rebelled against me have died. And then you can have the promised land. Even throughout that time, God provides for them. Now, the main provision he makes for them, beyond just food and water and sustenance and guidance throughout this time, the main sustenance he provides for them is that he's going to give them the promised land. We recognize as we study through the book of Joshua that they have to go fight for it, but God himself gives them the promised land. As we look at the book of Joshua in particular, we see that we recognize there are fierce people within this land. There are giants within this land. That there is intense opposition to the people of God. But in the midst of that, this small band of people prevail against many. In this land, they have prosperity. They have this land of fruit, of milk, of honey. And so, as we look at this, we recognize that's a part of the story that's going to come later. But God is telling them now, even in the middle of the desert... I'm going to give you this land, and when you have this land, you're going to have to do some certain things. That you're going to begin to worship in a way that brings honor to me. You're going to do things that make sure that you're aware that the one who provides for you is me and me alone. Now, these things are celebrated through these two events, the ceremony of the first fruits and the feast of weeks. So, first fruits. What's this about? What is the point of this? So, this is actually embedded into one of the previous feasts. This is a part of the celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that we just saw. They do this on the second day of the feast. It's a holy day. It's one they do in celebration. The worship portion, in particular, is a day where they come and they present the first sheaf of the barley harvest to the priest at the sanctuary. You see, they come and they offer it to God, indicating that the worshiper is offering thanksgiving to God for his source of livelihood. Now, I don't know what you guys know about farming. I grew up on a farm. You've probably seen farms. You've been around farms. Maybe you've had a garden or some flowers. Here's one of the things that I recognize about farming. When you get that first harvest, what are you guaranteed? The first harvest. You don't know that anything else is coming, right? In years of farming, growing up on this farm, I've seen many years we've gotten this first harvest and things don't work out and you don't get anything else that year. I've seen years where there's been prosperity and I've seen years of leanness. And one of the things that I recognize as we see this passage that we don't understand in our modern culture is that what the people of God are doing is that they are going before the Lord And they're offering this offering to God. They're saying, the first bit that I've gotten of my sustenance, I'm giving to you, Lord. I don't know what's coming, but I'm giving this first bit to you because you are the provider. They're also giving animal and grain offering in this. So it's a significant drain on their resources. Now, why is all this important, right? What's that context for? Why is this moment significant? You see, in this moment, what we have is the people of Israel saying that this harvest is God's harvest. What they are saying is that they recognize that they will do more with 90% and God's blessing than they could ever do with 100%. You see, it's a reminder of of our position before the Lord. It should make us trust in the provision of God. You see, this is why God did it. God is telling them that there are perhaps going to be hard times coming, but I'm going to see you through it. 
as we recognize this in our own lives, haven't we found that to be true? There have been times of leanness, to be sure, but haven't we made it through? There are times in my own life I can point to, there are moments that only by God's providential grace that I've gone through it. And yes, we're just talking about in a limited, perhaps financial, materialistic position. But as we start expanding that, thinking about things of health and wealth and all these things that would come into play, God has provided for us. And so we see God establishing before the people of Israel, every year I want you to do this. Why? Because it's going to force you to humble yourself and to look upon me and to recognize that you will do nothing without me. This isn't something that is done with arrogance or hostility. Rather, this is done out of love and compassion for his people. Because what it forces them to do, what it forces you and I to do, is to humble ourselves and to recognize that we are not in control, that you and I are not God. There is one God. His name is Jesus. And he is the one that is going to see the harvest come through. Now, as we look at this, we recognize that there's this idea of the first fruits and God's putting this idea of provision for his people out. We also see him talk about this feast of weeks and this significant festival in the life of the Hebrew culture. Now, what is the feast of weeks? This occurs about seven weeks after the feast of unleavened bread. This is a celebration of the harvest of grain. See, this is one of the celebrations of the harvest they've received. They've said, we've made this offering, and here, weeks later, we're celebrating that God has provided yet again. As we look at this, I think there's something we can pay attention to, particularly found here in verse 22. We see here in verse 22 that when the people of Israel to reap their harvest, when they're to gather these things from their land, they and their workers are not to take the entire field. That they reap a significant portion of it, but they're to reap right up against the edge. Nor that they gather the gleanings, that is the stuff that falls out from their harvest. Now why? What's, what's the point of this? What, what, what is significant about this moment? Well, this is God providing some measure of sustenance for his people. You see, in any society, in any culture, we recognize that there are some people who either physically cannot work or they're unable to do anything that would allow them to have this physical labor that they could provide for themselves. We're not talking about a culture of handouts. We're talking about people who are physically, in our culture, we would say would be disabled, who could not work, who could not provide for themselves. What this allows for is for those people to not be taken advantage of. What this allows for is for those people to be protected and cared for. What this allows for is for those who do not have and who cannot gain to have sustenance. You see, what God is doing here is that as they reap up to the edge of the field, and they don't pick up the gleanings, those things that have been left. God is saying in his culture, what he's establishing is, what is left is for those that cannot work. What is left is for those who cannot afford these things. He is providing, he is displaying his compassion to his people by saying that if you are in need, I am going to take care of you. That beyond that, he's establishing that if you have plenty, you have a responsibility to share. Now, I want to be very clear, this isn't something we're proclaiming like socialism where I have one cow, now the government has my cow. This isn't what we're talking about. 
But what this is showing us is that if God has given us plenty, we have a responsibility to serve those who do not have plenty. That we have a distinct biblical responsibility. That we are to care for the least of these, those that are endangered and in turmoil within our culture. As we look at the world, there are people that we would identify with that are in distress. We are to care for them. The reality is that we cannot turn a blind eye to these people who are in these situations. Perhaps a prime example of this, one that, that I struggle with as we drive around just the city in general, is people who are experiencing homelessness, right? As you get up to the stoplight or the stop sign, you see this person who's got a sign there. What is our natural inclination? Our, our thoughts are, my heart is breaking for them. They're experiencing something that I haven't experienced. But what is my next thought? Well, I can't give them cash because what if they spend it on something like drugs or alcohol? I can't care for them right now because I don't have time. My kids are with me, right? And we've just got things we've got to do. There are a litany of excuses that come up in my mind in those situations when the reality is that I have an obligation from the Lord to do something for the least of these. And what do I do? I move on past. That I would repent of things like that before you because I recognize that you and I are in the same boat, that we move past people who are experiencing difficulty and distress and we don't think twice about it. When the reality is, as we look at our lives, we might say, I don't have enough, I don't have enough to get by, I'm struggling. But here's the reality. As we hear these things about wealth in our culture and concerns about money and all this, and we hear this talk of the 1%, the elite, those who have it all, the truth is, as we look at America, we are the 1%. Do you know that the average laborer in the world gets by on less than $10 a day? We spend more than that when we stumble in the target with no goal in mind but to please ourselves and walk around. Now, I'm not decreeing that you shouldn't go to Target, though our wallets would probably be better if we didn't. I'm not saying that you can't have nice things. I'm not saying that you are a miserable person because you have money. What I am saying is that as we look at this passage, that God has given generosity to us to display His compassion and kindness to the world, not so that we could live in prosperity. That flies in the face of the American culture, doesn't it? We dream of this life of having white picket fences and a bigger house and nicer cars and more money. When God has not been generous to us so that we may have these things, He's been generous to us so that, as Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says, that we may be a blessing that blesses others. You see, as we look at this passage, this should remind us of Thanksgiving. That as we look at Thanksgiving, that what it has become is this celebration of American life. Deep fried turkey, football, Black Friday sales, like all this. And there's nothing inherently wrong with those things. But the point of Thanksgiving is not that we celebrate this great turkey and we watch the Cowboys lose or whatever this may be. But the point of Thanksgiving is that we remember the harvest of 1621. That none of you even know what I'm talking about when I say harvest of 1621. This is the harvest that enabled the colonists at Plymouth, that the Native Americans who were there with them, who saw them struggling, had a plentiful harvest that year. This is the harvest that they shared with the colonists that allowed them to survive the winter. 
This is the harvest that they gave generously to the point that it hurt. So that these people, who decades later would take their land and drive them off their native land, they gave generously to the point of pain so that these people would survive today. You see, even the day of Thanksgiving that we have isn't at a point of celebrating football and turkey and all these things, but it's a day that we celebrate the unbounding generosity of strangers. It's a day that we celebrate the kindness and mercy that God would display through people that have no obligation to love and care. Now, as we look at this, we recognize that there are some direct applications for us there, right? Some things we have to do to live humbly, to live generously before the Lord. Frankly, we don't have time to get into all those today, but what I believe we can draw from this is that we have a direct command from God to live generously. That what we are to do is to put our lives before the Lord as a blank check, put it on the table and say, God, whatever you will do with me, I'll do it. Wherever you would call me, I'll go. Whatever I must give, I'll give. Whatever it is that you require from me, Lord, it is yours and yours alone. I don't want to pretend that what God's going to ask from you might be this life of comfort and ease. I'm not going to say that he's going to send you to the farthest reaches of earth to reach those that are unreached, though he may very well do so. But here's what I do know. In my years of ministry and of leading mission trips and being, on, being with organizations, what I have found is that if you're not willing to show generosity and kindness to those who are next door, you're not going to show it overseas. You're not going to show it on a mission trip. You're just not going to do it. What God is commanding us here, what he's putting in front of us, is to live in a way that brings honor and glory to him. To live and worship in a way that allows the world to see him respond to the goodness of his name. Now, these passages aren't finished. We have another section, and I've just simply titled this The Seventh Month. And there's a lot that's happening here, and I'm going to read through it, and you'll see there are several different events that are occurring here in the seventh month of the life of people of Israel. So beginning in verse 23, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is a day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people, and whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work, it is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning in the evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days, is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. 
For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbath, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and beside all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feast of the Lord. There's a lot that's happening there. And as we look at this, I want to make sure you have some context and This section of scripture begins with this feast of trumpets. And this is beginning on the first day of the seventh month. And uh, on this day, this is a special day. Uh, You see, in the Jewish culture, in the Hebrew culture, the first day of every month was celebrated with these sound of trumpets. And so everyone knew that this was a new month beginning. But this day in particular that was a special day. This was set aside as a day of worship and sacrifice. That specifically, this is preparation for the days that are to come, pointing to the Day of Atonement that is coming shortly thereafter. You see, as we look at this, this should remind us of Advent in particular. You see, Advent is something that uh, we do on occasion celebrate before Christmas. And Advent simply means, the word translated means coming. And this is a reflection of the coming time of Jesus. It's a time, those 40 days of Advent, before we get to Christmas, this is a time of rejoicing and celebrating, preparing our hearts for the true significance and meaning of Christmas. That it's not just about presents and snow and gathering and all those things, though those are good, but the point of Christmas is that we prepare ourselves to worship our Lord and Savior. That we rejoice that on this day, thousands of years ago, this perfect sinless lamb of god was born that he was born fully man and fully human but perfect and without sin so that he may go and bear the weight of our sin and shame upon the cross you see that's what we're doing we're preparing our hearts before we celebrate that's what god is establishing for his people as we move into the day of atonement this rejoicing this celebration this day where their sins are going to be cleansed He's saying, prepare yourselves. Get ready. Spend some time fasting, praying, making offerings, worshiping before the Lord. This is all building up to this Day of Atonement. And on this Day of Atonement, this occurs each year. And during this day, the people of Israel are called to fast. Now, as we get into this, as we recognize what's going on, I want to remind you what the Day of Atonement is. Uh, You may remember from several weeks ago, we were in Leviticus chapter 16. 
And we looked at in an in-depth view of what the Day of Atonement consisted of. But to summarize, it is a special day in which all the sins of the people are forgiven through the offering from the high priest. You see, the high priest has been purified and enters into the holy place and sprinkles the blood of an animal on the seat of atonement. This is a demonstration of the reconciliation of the people to God by God's work. And so on this day, they're to prepare themselves. And in the scriptures here, it says that we recognize that we are going to fast on this day of atonement. You see, we see this word afflict occur in there three times. As we translate that, we have to recognize this isn't talking about self-harm or anything like that, but rather it's pointing to a humbling of oneself before God. Contextually, as we see it used throughout the scriptures, we see it referring to fasting. Now, as we recognize this, that they are going to be going to fast before the Lord as they go into this day of atonement, they're preparing their hearts and minds before they enter into the presence of the Lord. Now, I think as we look at this, there are some natural things that we would begin to think of, right? That if you're like me and you're looking at this, you're seeing there's some things that we see here that would make us think about Jesus, right? That will make us think about the things we see in the New Testament. You see, the Day of Atonement occurs each and every year within the Jewish culture. Why? Because there's not a perfect, fulfilling sacrifice available. That there is not a sacrifice that can be offered for these people that would pay for the debt of their sin and shame. So they continually, each year, offer these sacrifices so they may find right standing before the Lord. Yet, as we see in the New Testament, what we see is that Jesus is the sacrifice on our behalf. He is the perfect, fulfilling sacrifice. You see, through Him, we have reconciliation of the people by God, for God. You see, we indeed celebrate the Day of Atonement each and every time we gather. Because if we look back at this Day of Atonement, this sacrifice that is made here in the Old Testament... That should take us on a straight line to the cross. You see, as we rejoice in what occurred on the cross, the death of Jesus, we celebrate the Day of Atonement ourselves. Because on the cross, that is the mercy seat that God laid himself upon. That on that cross, he bore the weight of our sin. That he suffered for the appointed time so that we might have life eternal through his death, burial, and resurrection that provided that forgiveness for you and I. Now, as we look at this passage, that's not the end of it, right? There's one last celebration, this Feast of Booths. And this is a significant one because we go through the Day of Atonement. They've fasted, they've gone through the Day of Atonement, and what do they do? They celebrate. They have a holy party after the Day of Atonement. Why? Because this is a significant moment. In this day, the debt of their sin and shame has been wiped away. They are clean, they are made new, they are no longer bound by their chains before the Lord. And they now rejoice and celebrate that historically as we look at this, that this is a day of celebration. That even today as we look at modern Jewish culture, they still celebrate in this way. It's a day of celebration, of food, of dancing, of partying, of rejoicing. Why? Because they recognize that they have been liberated from sin and shame. As they look back at the long history of Israel, they recognize that they have been freed from bondage in Egypt. They've been liberated from oppression. 
that God has generously provided for them through all these difficult and hard times we read in the Old Testament. And then, as if that's not enough, they've come to this Day of Atonement where for another year they have been purified before the Lord and God is telling them, by my work, by what I have done, you are made clean. And what do they do? They celebrate. They rejoice in what God has done. Now as we look at this and we read this passage, this is one that it's very easy for us to look at and to recognize, just perhaps struggle to recognize what's the point of this. What's the point of all of these things? How does this apply to the church today? Well, I believe that as we look at this, what we can see is that all of these celebrations and feasts, all of these occurrences will find their fulfillment in Jesus. You see, as I said earlier, each one of these events, each one of these feasts, each of these historical moments that they're pointing to are but a pale shadow of what is to come. You see, we recognize that Jesus, as we look at this side of the story, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of every reason we have to celebrate in this passage. We see the Passover, where the angel of death passed over the people of Israel because they have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. And we know that on this final day of atonement that God is going to pass over us because we have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. We see in the Exodus that the people of Israel have been free, they've been liberated from bondage to the people of Egypt. And we see that we have a personal Exodus, that we have been liberated from the bondage of sin and shame because we are a new creation in Christ. We see that they celebrate this provision of the land of harvest, and we see that we rejoice that we will go into the promised land that is the new heavens and the new earth one day because God has redeemed us. We see them rejoicing in this day of atonement, that their sins have been forgiven, that they have been made clean once again for yet another year. And yet we gather and rejoice in our day of atonement every single Sunday, rejoicing that for all time Christ has purified us and made us clean. You see, I, I would submit to you that every single one of these things in the Old Testament they reflected in the cross and in the finished work of Jesus. I've quoted from the book of Hebrews a lot in this, and I think it helps us understand what God is doing here. And, and the writer of Hebrews is simply just a good student of Scripture seeing what's occurring. But Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, let us get some further understanding of what's happening here. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So I believe that these verses, that these two verses we look at, show us that Jesus gives us a reason to celebrate. Jesus gives us a reason to rejoice and to proclaim his goodness each and every day. That even more so on this day that we gather together on Sundays, we have a great reason to celebrate because we have a great Savior. 
and that you and I who are found in Christ should rejoice and celebrate in his goodness, his mercy. That we should proclaim clearly that he is the God who is seated on the throne, who has saved us, and he can save anyone who would cry out to him. And that even today as we are here, perhaps there are people that are here that are watching online that would say that I've not been found in Christ. That I don't have a reason to celebrate because I'm not even a believer. Or perhaps today is the day that you would choose to celebrate the things of Christ by repenting of your sin and trusting in the Lord. As we look at Scripture, we recognize that God says that there are prayers that He will say no to. There are prayers that He'll say yes to. And there are prayers that He'll say, wait. There is one prayer that he, we guarantee that He will answer every time, that He makes it very clear throughout the Scripture. And that is a prayer of someone crying out to Him for salvation and forgiveness. The Scriptures make it clear that if you cry out to God for mercy and forgiveness... There is no sin too great. There is no distance too far. There is nothing that can keep you from the saving embrace of Jesus Christ. And so today, you and I have the opportunity to cry out yet again to God and to be brought into His loving arms. To rejoice and to celebrate in forgiveness and mercy. And to sing a song of rejoicing that the God of the universe loves you and I. And so here in the next few minutes, we'll have opportunity to do that. That I'll uh, begin a time of silent prayer. That you and I will go to the Lord individually, asking Him to move in our lives. And then together we'll pray. And then after that, we'll have an opportunity to sing this beautiful song, Cornerstone, of rejoicing in the goodness, the firmness of our faith. Because it's anchored on the one who has fulfilled everything that has been promised in Scripture. It's anchored on Jesus and Jesus alone. So if you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are grateful for you today. We're grateful for your grace and mercy. We're grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus. We're thankful that we have a reason to celebrate your grace. So Lord, we pray today that we would rejoice in what you've done for us. That we would cry out to proclaim the goodness of God and sing clearly of the redemption that we found. Father, I recognize that perhaps there are people listening or who are here that have not received the mercy of Christ. And Lord, I pray that they would repent of their sins today and trust in you. They could sing this next song in confidence and assurance that Jesus is their anchor. For those of us that are here that are in Christ, that have reason to celebrate and rejoice, we pray that we sing loudly and clearly because of the finished work of the cross. That that finished work has brought us from death into life. And so, Lord, we pray that we rejoice, that we celebrate this reason to sing, that Jesus sits on the throne and that he calls us his. So, Father, I ask that you move in a mighty way. Would you send the Spirit and let it bless us today? 
Let us sing clearly and loudly of the finished work of Jesus Christ and rejoice in the new mercies you provide for us each and every day. Father, we thank you for all you've done, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.